Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, Truth Seekers. You're listening to A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com, and I'm your host, Michael Fordham. If you've just clicked the link on my webpage or you're listening on blogtalkradio.com or even the Blog Talk Radio player on my Facebook page and you want to call in live, look, we'd love to talk with you. So give us a call. The number is 347-326-9470. Oh, need a minute to get something to write with? But don't worry, I'll give the number again right after the commentary. Or if you like, you can Twitter me your questions and comments at twitter.com slash a measure of truth. Also, if you haven't yet, why don't you look me up on Facebook? I'm the Michael Fordham with a photo of me in studio, and you can always email me your questions and comments at a measure of truth at gmail.com. Look, we got a great show for you today. We'll be right back after this. Hi, I'm Michael Fordham, host of A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com. And I want to take a moment to talk to you about a heinous crime against humanity that plagues our nation. And yes, believe it or not, communities just like yours. Here's something you can do today to lend your support in the fight against human trafficking, also known as modern slavery. For example, Tanya was only 11 when she was forced to use her body for her own survival and the perverse desires of others. Now 18, Tanya knows no other life. She can't even remember when she was able to choose how she wanted to dress. Tanya dreams of being a teacher one day, and with the help of Bridge to Freedom programs and your support, 
they can empower her and others like her to move from surviving to thriving. You can make a huge difference in the life of a survivor this year through your support and donations to Bridge to Freedom Foundation. Bridge to Freedom is a nonprofit organization that provides aid to survivors of slavery who now live in the U.S., such as former child soldiers and victims of sex trafficking and forced labor. The cornerstone of Bridge to Freedom's work is personal and professional development to help survivors adapt and thrive in their new lives and communities and find work to support themselves. The Bridge to Freedom Foundation needs your support to help people just like Tanya. They need your urgent action to ensure that they can continue to provide clothing and health and beauty services to these survivors. These are not only important for rebuilding self-esteem, but are crucial to finding employment. They're also in great need of storage containers and clothing racks to organize and store donations. While donations of needed items are vital, one sure thing that will help to stop the spread of this injustice and prevent it from thriving undetected is educating yourselves about human trafficking or slavery and knowing the signs and the proper authorities to contact if you become aware of a victim in crisis. Find out more at bridgetofreedomfoundation.org or if you have a reason to suspect that someone may be a victim of human trafficking, please call the National Human Trafficking Resource Center hotline on 1-888-373-7888. Multilingual call specialists are on standby 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. All calls are confidential. Welcome back, Truth Seekers. You're listening to A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com, and I'm your host, Michael Fordham. Look, if you just click the link on my webpage or you're listening on blogtalkradio.com or even the Blog Talk Radio player on my Facebook page and you want to call in live, look, we'd love to talk to you. So give us a call. Number is 347-326-9470. Or if you like, you can Twitter me your questions and comments at twitter.com slash a measure of truth. Also, if you haven't yet, why don't you look me up on Facebook? I'm the Michael Fordham with a photo of me in studio. And you can always email me your questions and comments at a measure of truth at gmail.com. Look, we've got a great show for you today. We will, later on, we'll talk with Charles D. Ellison, the host of The New School on Sirius XM Radio and the edge-filled weekly take on the world of politics. He's a daily contributor to Politic365.com and author of the critically acclaimed urban thriller Tantrum. His insightful political analysts and commentary can be frequently found on the Huffington Post and also Politico. Ellison is the director of the Center for New Politics and Policy, a former senior fellow at the University of Denver, and a visiting fellow at the George Washington University Institute for Politics, Democracy, and the Internet. And that's not the half of it. There's so much more information that can be found at charlesdellison.blogspot.com. Charles Ellison, welcome to A Measure of Truth. I'm sorry, Charles. Welcome to A Measure of Truth. Are you there? I'm here. Hi, Michael. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Oh, it's fantastic to have you. I was so looking forward to having you on and um, talking about your new book. And it's just amazing to me, a man who hosts his own show would be willing to come on my show and talk a little bit also about the, the book that you have and about what you do and your specialties in politics and the like. 
All right, that's what's up. Good action. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm I'm honored to participate and and humbled by the invitation. So thanks so much. You know, I, I guess we'll get into a little bit after we talk about the book, but it, it's just amazing to me that you, you do so much. I'm reading through your, your bio, and it's like you're Superman. It's like <laughs> this guy is everywhere doing everything. It's, it's almost as if to say if someone were to tell you you can't do something, you just have to do it just to let them know I'm still here. <laughs> yeah, you know, just uh, there's a lot to uh, to do in the world of politics, just keeping my, my finger on the pulse. Of, of public policy and, and all those critical issues that that define us, that impact us. So it's uh, it's all interconnected. So you know, I I, try, I definitely try to keep up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, you're a contributor and a writer. You're you're doing so many other things. And um, the interesting thing about the fact that you wrote this book is you have a perspective and an inside view that that most people would never see in Washington politics. Tell us a little bit also about your background and um, your experience on the Hill. Sure, sure. Uh, I, you know, I've actually been in Washington, D.C. for about 17 years now. I actually came here as a college student. Uh, initially, I uh, went to American University and then um, transferred and attended University of Maryland at College Park. I, I, I Originally, I'm from Philadelphia. I, that's where I was, I was raised. I actually was born in California, but raised pretty much all my life since I was about three or four in North Philadelphia and had always had an interest, had always been drawn to politics and, and the world of politics. And, you know, I came from a very political town that's full of, uh, full of political machinery, if you will. It's, it's right. a big union town. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's a very democratic town, in, in fact, because of that, that strong union presence. But it's, it's also where democracy was founded. So you have a lot of a lot of history uh, that's that's constantly being uh, you know being pushed on us from from a very young age you know from you know just taking class trips down on Market Street we went to Independence Hall to uh, learning about Ben Franklin and and the Declaration of Independence and everything else so that was sort of in my DNA and my blood if you will since I was a little kid and and that that interest in politics and being exposed to not just politics from an institutional or governing perspective but just being exposed to politics also on a grassroots and community level as well uh, had a very uh, strong influence on me as a, as a young boy growing into a young man. And, and I've always, I had always wanted to go to school in and also work in, in D.C. So this, this started at a very young age. Uh, I've always been writing, uh, writing both creatively and, and also writing a lot of analysis and commentary. I've been doing that since a, a very young age as well, since middle school. Since I really? Remember. Wow. Yeah, so I, you know, I just always had an interest in that. You know, in fact, when I was about, um, uh, I think I, I must have been like 13 or 14 at the time when the hearings, the nomination hearings for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas were taking place, I, was just, I just remember being very fascinated by that process. Mm-hmm. And, and watching these these old white guys grill uh, this very controversial. I mean, a lot of folks remember those those days. And and if you you want to get sort of a, a sense of that, you know, I, I, I encourage your listeners to definitely go to C-SPAN's website, c-span.org, and look at their video archives. I'm sure they have those those old Clarence Thomas hearings there. But I, I remember rushing home from school every day, and my <laughs> my, my grandmother would be there, you know, sitting there watching the uh, the hearings on network TV and just fascinated by that whole process and how 
these guys are grilling him and how he's responding to it. You know, obviously the innuendo and the controversy surrounding his, his nomination added an, an element of drama to it. Right. So I was very fascinated by it. I remember telling my grandmother, I said, you know, Mom, I said, one day I said, I'm going to work for those guys up on that, you know, right there on, on that hill. I said, I'm, I'm going to work for them one day. And, sure, and she, you know, she kind of laughed, and she was like, well, you know, with, whatever you put your mind to, you can do it. And so, you know, sure enough, years later, <laughs> I had the opportunity to, to finally go up on Capitol Hill and, and, and work for, uh, for a few members. So, I, you know, I, my, my background is varied. I, you know, I worked for uh, two ranking members on both sides of the aisle. I've worked for Democrats. I've worked for Republicans. Uh, did some work for uh, New Jersey Congressman Donald Payne. Uh, also did some work as, as a speechwriter, in fact, uh, for uh, Speaker uh, New Gainbridge. I uh, did some work for him, uh, which mm. was quite a surprise even to me. Uh, that that kind of <laughs> that that fell in my lap. I, I, he right. wasn't one of my favorite people at the time, but you know, I got a call, and they, they had an opening for they, they needed a speechwriter. And I was actually the only African-American staffer in uh, Speaker Gamridge's office at the time. They actually, there was an outgoing black speechwriter, and they needed another black speechwriter because they recognized, you know, <laughs> we don't have any black folks, with, uh, <laughs> you know, any black folks with the uh, or staff. We need that. So it, it was kind of funny. And, you know, I, I really treasured the, the, the experience for the access. Right, right. Uh, yeah, I worked. It, I worked right in the Capitol Rotunda, and it, it was quite. A, it, it's stories I could tell my grandkids. So it, it was. It was. It was a lot of fun that that year working for the speaker. Oh wow! You know, and speechwriter, even though it might, it's no token position. I mean, that's an important role. It was. I, I was one of two, or or yeah, I was about, there was two speechwriters on on the speaker's staff at that time. And, I, you know, I was there also during the time of impeachment. So I, I was there when the, you know, I, I saw everything unfold. I was there on the House floor mm-hmm. when they impeached uh, President Clinton at that time. And it, it was very surreal. I, I didn't believe that that was happening on, wow. on, on, an, on a ridiculous issue such as that. <laughs> you know, I was just kind of sitting <laughs> there, kind of my jaw dropping, like, they're really going to do this. Like, this is... This is unreal, and, and I actually, you know, watched the whole process as they walked the articles of impeachment from the House to the Senate floor. I was kind of there watching history unfold. So, uh, yeah, it, it was. It does come with a lot of responsibility. Indeed, mm-hmm. there's a lot of access, a lot of responsibility, um, and, and there were other roles that I played as well beyond just speech writing. There were some policy roles that I played as well, working for the speaker. So it was a tremendous opportunity. I, I got to see a lot of things. Got to meet a lot of. Wonderful people got to work with some some interesting folks and uh, some very smart folks there up there on the hill. Some also some folks who uh, you know I, I would have would have you know there were a lot of folks I enjoyed working with and there were some uh, individuals there that I didn't like working with. So you know, uh, <laughs> but but it was you know the why but I, I you know one thing I, I you know I, I tell people quite a bit uh, as far as politics is concerned is that you, you have to make a distinction between ideology or your own personal political philosophies right. and political parties. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's a very clear distinction between parties and your own philosophy or your own political value system. A lot of folks don't understand that. They, they tend to think that they're one and the same. So you could be a Democrat and you could be conservative and you could be a Republican and you could be liberal. You know, parties are, are nothing but tools and machines that, that people tend to use for their own political gain or for their own uh, individual means or, or collective group 
uh, goals or objectives. And it, it's very important that we make those distinctions, uh, particularly when you look at the contemporary uh, American political landscape. And these parties do change uh, according to cycles. Uh, so, you know, every 40 or 50 years or so, right. there, there's some tremendous upheaval that takes place, uh, some tremendous political change on the horizon, and, and these things, they do change. So, yeah, I've had the, I've had the opportunity and the pleasure of working, and it's, it's offered me a very balanced outlook on, on politics and on life, you know, being, having the ability to, to work closely with folks in both parties, and I, and I enjoy that and I appreciate that. Now, let me ask you, Charles, um, were there any particular experiences or um, or anything that uh, actually occurred while you were working on the Hill that gave you the idea for this book, or is this mostly just using information to develop a story on its own? You know, I, and that's a very good question. I I left the Hill rather jaded and cynical about the political process. Mm. When we, each election cycle, particularly during presidential election cycles, we, we tend to, we, when I say we, um, I'm thinking of voters, we, we tend to look at politics from the point of view of the voting booth, and that's it. We never look at politics beyond pulling the lever or, or beyond the vote. You know, there's this whole very intricate, very complex process that takes place behind the scenes, particularly on Capitol Hill. So... It was a, a, a culmination of experiences that took place you know, while I was on the Hill, uh, you know, things that I'd seen that, I, you, know, I, you know, a lot of people say they go on the Hill to work for these members because they're interested in contributing to the common good. But, you know, just to kind of keep it real and, and not the front here, uh, folks have, uh, you know, egos are at work or at play. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, folks have their own, you know, individual agendas that they're trying to push forward. And, uh, and there's a lot of that going on. I, you know, I, when I, you know, and even myself to a certain degree, when I went to work for Congressman Payne or went to work for the speaker, of course, you know, I'm keeping certain professional goals and, and career objectives in mind. But at the same time, I also grew up with, with that maxim of, you know, anything you do in life, you contribute to the, to the common good. You know, you contribute to doing something positive. And, but there are a lot of folks on the Hill that, including the elected officials themselves, uh, who aren't there for that. They're there for personal gain and for, uh, for, for making some sort of move in terms of a, of a career objective or a career choice. Uh, and, and that's very discouraging to a certain degree because you know, I think people tend to look at, at you know, and that's why you see when you look at current polling numbers right, right now, why Congress um, polls so low. I think only about less than 30% of Americans nationwide have confidence in, in Congress' ability to, to make laws to shape and mold public policy. Uh, that's very unfortunate. People are just very jaded about the process, and for good reason, because when you see some of the stuff that takes place, the conversations that take place behind the scenes, the public policy that's shaped according to, um, according to the party's motives. You know, there's a lot of, you know, I remember seeing the press conference last week uh, with the, the new prime minister and deputy prime minister of England, and, and it was very encouraging to have the, prime, the new prime minister of England, of Britain, David Cameron of the Conservative Party, say, you know what, we, we, wanna, we have an opportunity here to put the people above the party. Mm. And, and I was really encouraged by that statement. You don't hear enough <laughs> of that in, in American politics. And, and that's not to say, you know, I'm, I'm not all, you know, sort of 
euphoric either or or misled by uh you know the the, the British election suddenly being this this new massive shift in British politics. I mean, of course they're going to have to go through some through some issues. They're going to have to go through some tremendous changes in order to make that work. But I was just very encouraged by that statement. I like to hear more of that in American politics because there's so much of there's so much jockeying for position uh and you know, particularly on the hill and this happens also on the state and local level as well. But there's just so much jockeying for position. There's so much trying to push or promote the party agenda uh over the agenda of of the people and and over the agenda of 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 our communities that it, it tends to cloud why those institutions are there in the first place. So so yeah, absolutely that that in, that inspired the the book Tantrum. Uh, the you know what's it's called an urban political thrill, but it's also sort of a dark comedy as well. Right, uh, right. Uh, uh, it, it's a tale on. It's a cautionary tale about how our institutions work, about the political process behind the scenes, about the players and the roles that they play behind the scenes. And it's, yeah, it's very dark, uh, you know, somewhat jaded commentary on on the state of things. And uh, it it, absolutely, I I went through some experiences on the Hill, even after leaving the Hill, that uh, left a very heavy impression on me. Well, tell us a little bit about the main characters and about the premise of the of this um, of Tantrum. Uh, Tantrum is is primarily set in Philadelphia, my my town, my city where I grew up, and it's it's a it, it, it once again it's a cautionary tale. The, the main protagonist is he's nameless. He's called the councilman. He's <laughs> a city he's a city council person in in the city of Philadelphia. He's an up and coming rising star. Uh, he, he's somewhat of a celebrity in his town, and mm-hmm. he's very fresh and very new to the scene. Uh, he sort of came in on this this wave of of optimism, uh, or, or at least this wave of op- optimism optimism regarding what he could deliver to his particular district there in Philadelphia. And uh, but he's he's got a very dark, very secret, shady past as well, and mm-hmm. and that adds to the mystique surrounding this character. He's by no means a hero. You know, he's somewhat of an anti-hero, and he's going through his own sort of personal identity crisis at the same time, as he's he's sort of sort of falling into or 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 getting comfortable with with this new capacity, this new role that he's playing. Uh, there's there's an assassination attempt on his life one day, and mm. he's trying to figure that out as well because it's, it's very public, it's very open, it's it's very loud and very violent. And he's trying to wonder, well, why would someone go after a very lowly city councilman like me? And, you know, at first the assumption is that, well, maybe there's some local crime figures that are after him because of some legislation that he's trying to push forward. Uh, he's somewhat of a, of a grassroots hero, if you will, in the, in the local community there. And that, that, but he, he, he starts finding out that, well, what's happening is that there's some big national conspiracy, some nefarious plot that's taking place. And there's all these plot twists that, that start unfolding. There's some other realizations, and, and a lot of it's connected to his very dark past. And so there's, I don't want to give too much away, right, but right. Of, <laughs> there, there are a lot of very dark, uh, very, um, uh, very, you know, so for him, for the, for the main character, for that protagonist, it's a very nightmarish twist that takes place, and he starts 
he starts realizing that, okay, this is much bigger than just some local crime boss that's after me. Although all those elements are, are there, and all those characters are there too. So anyone who grew up in a, in a, especially in a big major metropolitan area, grew up in a big city like a Philadelphia, like a New York, like a Chicago, uh, like a Los Angeles, uh, or elsewhere that have those big city political machines, they're, they're going to be very familiar with some of the situations and the characters in this book. Anybody that grew up in a big city, uh, you know, from the, from the, what we, you know, we used to call them, you know, those storefront, you know, those corner store preachers on the soapbox to those community activists to the corrupt politicians and mayors and city council people, all of those characters are right there in Tantrum. So that makes the characters very approachable and, and very familiar, uh, particularly if, if you grew up in a, in, a, in a major urban center where you have all these different activities and, uh, taking place and, and all these different players uh, that fulfill all these various roles, whether they be good or evil. Now, you, you've got a lot of people who are very excited about this book, too, and um, um, even politicians. They they seem to think that you, you wrote something that um, is exciting and um, and exposes some areas about politics and gives things in, in you know, very acute detail that, that really sucks them in as well. Tell us who else will be really interested in this book also. You know, I, I wrote the book... Uh, the, the initial inspiration for it, you know, and I will tell you too, Michael, that, uh, and, and this is just a, a bit of, you know, a bit of a, of, of a backstory for your listeners as well, but, you know, initially it started off as a, as a collection of essays. You know, once again, I just uh, came off the hill fresh from, from a tour, so to speak, in, in American politics, behind the scenes. And, you know, once again, I was very disillusioned about some of the things that I had seen. I mean, at the same time, I, I appreciated the experience, and, you know, it's definitely stories that I could tell my kids and grandkids, but there were some things that, that I had very fresh thoughts about. And so initially it was a collection of essays. And then uh, after a while, I, I started coming up with, with a storyline. just this, And, and I, I, I love to – I'm a big sci-fi nut. You know, I love I – love, political thrillers. I'm a big, you know, born supremacy fan or, you know, I watch 24 every weekend, you know, like a lot of other people do. And, you know, and I, I read a lot of David Balducci and, you know, James Patterson and stuff from that. But, you know, also I'm, a, I'm also a, a, you know, an avid reader of, of a lot of the, the black literary classics, some of them which are uh, major urban political thrillers in, in the American literary canon, like Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Um, mm-hmm. I've reread that on on more than one occasion. Uh, or uh, Chester Himes, if he hollers, let him go. Uh, yeah. Stephen Carter's The Emperor of Ocean Park. You know, I remember. You know, so but I, I do remember reading two works, no, three works at that time when, and this was in back in 1999, 2000. Uh, there were three works that left a very heavy impression on me. Uh, Derek Bell's Faces at the Bottom of the Well. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Ward. Uh, Jack uh, Ward just uh, Jack Gantz about a, a political hack in Chicago and um, you know Company Man by Brent Wade. These mm, are some mm. some somewhat little known uh, political classics. Derek Bell especially right. he he had a very clever way in his stories uh, and faces at the bottom of the world. For a lot of people who don't know, Derek Bell is a legendary uh, law professor uh, who I believe is now at New York University. He used to teach at Harvard, and he he had a very clever way of inserting. Uh, political discourse and debates and conversations through 
characters and through some very, uh, very unique stories, uh, including one science fiction story, which I remember kind of caught, sparked a lot of controversy about some, uh, some aliens that came to Earth and, and asked the planet for all its African Americans to, to take them back, take us back with them to their planet. Yeah, but he, what he did is through that story, he addressed some very pressing legal and public policy issues uh, through mm. that story. So, you right. know, I remember at that time being being very impressed with that and, and inspired by it. And I said, you know what, Th- this is what I should do with Tantrum. I, rather than it being a collection of essays, I should create a cast of very compelling characters, uh, throw in some plot twists, you know, put, put together, a, you know, sort of an entertaining storyline, uh, but at the same time address some of the critical political uh, public policy and, and even social and economic issues of our time through these issues, through the dialogue, through the action sequences, and hence there's tantrum. So, you know, I was looking for a broader audience. I didn't want to speak to the choir. I didn't want to speak to people within my profession only. I wanted folks uh, from, from all different backgrounds, particularly different class levels as well. I, I didn't want just uh, middle-class business or political professionals reading tantrum. I wanted, you know, folks like, you know, just average, normal, working-class folks, like some of the folks I grew up with uh-huh. in that neighborhood in North Philadelphia, to be able to read and, and digest this book as well and to come back to me and say, hey, you know what, now I kind of understand how right. the game is played. You know, uh-huh. so it's that's always with tantrum, I, I use a TV uh, analogy. I, I say, you know, it's kind of a mix of The Wire meets The West Wing. You know, that, that, that's <laughs> Okay, very good. Um, and you know what? We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come right back. Um, just want to do a couple of quick plugs, and we'll be right back with Charles Ellison right after this. Dr. Leonard N. Smith and the Mount Zion Baptist Church of Arlington, Virginia, invite you to worship with us Sunday mornings at our 7.30, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. worship services. Join Dr. Smith for Sermons from the Mount on Sundays at 6.30 a.m. Visit our website at www.mountzionbaptist.com where you can learn more about how Mount Zion is becoming a kingdom-focused church. Remember, Sermons from the Mount, Dr. Smith on Sundays at 6.30 a.m. When reading, we remove ourselves from the confines of reality to immerse ourselves in the intrigue of the unfamiliar. Every book has the potential to touch the human soul deeply arousing patterns of thought that might otherwise have lain dormant. The pleasure we derive from the written word is unique in that we must labor for it. Other forms of art provide us with stimulus and ask nothing more than our emotional response. Reading is an active pastime that requires an investment of emotion as well as our concentration and imagination. The words we read are merely a starting point for a process that takes place largely within our hearts and minds. There are few activities as comforting, relaxing, and healthy as perusing the pages of a good piece of fiction or nonfiction. Curling up with a book and a cup of tea or coffee is one of the simplest ways we can remove ourselves from the confines of reality in order to immerse ourselves in the drama and intrigue of the unfamiliar. The pleasure of transcending reality is only one aspect of the reading experience. However, 
Each time we read for enjoyment, whether we prefer the fantastic nature of fiction or the empathy awakened within us by a memoir or the instructive passion of nonfiction, we create entire landscapes in our mind's eye. The books we choose provide us with the inspiration we need to accomplish such a feat, but it is our own creative reserves that empower us to use our imagination for this unique and beautiful purpose. The tales you lose yourself in can lead you on paths of discovery that take you out of your own life and help you to see that existence can unfold in an infinite number of ways. You can learn so much from the characters and mentors who guide you from page to page. Your emotions are awakened each time you read, allowing you to become a vessel of the passion that pours forth from line after line of print. Ultimately, the books you absorb, those that touch you deeply, will become a part of who you are, providing you with a rich and thrilling world within that you can revisit any time you wish by simply closing your eyes. If you haven't read a book for pleasure lately, try to allow yourself the time. Look, you deserve it. This is an excerpt taken from thedailyohm.com sent to us by Paris Cassidine of Annapolis, Maryland. Thank you, Paris. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Welcome back, Truth Seekers. You're listening to A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com, and I'm your host, Michael Fordham, and we're talking with Charles Ellison about his brand-new book, Tantrum. Now, is there a um, a screenplay in the work as, as well? Uh, not at the moment, but, oh, but there's okay. some conversations. There are definitely some conversations that are taking place about that. No, there, there's it, a lot of lot of interest that's been generated um, in tantra, particularly in, over the, since it came out um, in 2008. Yeah, a lot of what's been written about the book kind of like sort of makes you feel that it might be going in that direction. That's why I asked, um, and um, it would be very interesting to see how that unfolds as well. But I uh, I'm really excited to um, actually read the book, and maybe we can have you back on even after that, so that I could really really dig my teeth into this interview. Absolutely. Absolutely. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, tell us a little bit more about, um, for instance, machine politics. What does that actually mean? Machine politics, uh, especially when you're looking or you're examining very closely how a how public policy is shaped in a big city. Uh, in a big, you know, big cities like a Washington D.C., for example, which is population of about 600,000 plus, but its population doubles, I mean triples pretty much every day because it's the nation's capital. When you look at a New York, a Philly, a Chicago, a L.A., uh, you know, they, they have these very complex, very intricate uh, mechanisms uh, at work, political mechanisms uh, that are at work within those urban centers, within those cities. So, and that, that's comprised of you know, everything or every institution from the mayor 
uh, who's the executive sitting at the top of that of that system of that process within the city to its city council, its legislative branch, uh, to even its its courts. You know, so so every every big city has a machine in place. We call it a machine, which is somewhat of a cynical term, uh, but we we call it a machine because it. It functions as well-oiled. It has a lot of money being funneled into it through campaign contributions, through, uh, through also uh, contracts and procurement. Uh, you know, obviously uh, certain businesses or certain interests uh, that would like to play a bigger role in city politics and also would like to make money off of that, you know, off of that particular, uh, off that, that particular city's uh, budget, Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, to get their skin in the game, they they find they identify that particular politician who they think is a winner, who could become the next mayor or who could become the next city council member of that particular ward or district, and to get their skin in the game and to get those contracts, um, that there's that that machine process that takes place. And you know, and everybody knows the game, and you know, it's very uh, amusing sometimes to watch. You know, particularly when you see these headlines and people stare at the at, at these reports of corruption with incredulity. Like, you know, how could this happen? And, and the level of corruption that's hit. But, but everyone knows that, that you have to pay to play. Right, and, and exactly. that's not just a, a term that was coined. And actually, arguably, Philadelphia was the, the first city to coin that term in the early 20th century, the early 1900s, that whole pay-to-play term. That's where that all started back home. But uh, in every major city, you have that. That's that machine taking place or those different interests. Like I told you, my hometown of Philly, real big union town. In fact, there's a major primary that's taking place tomorrow, uh, Tuesday, in, in Pennsylvania uh, between the current incumbent senator, uh, Arlen Specter, who I'm sure everybody heard of when he switched parties and went from Republican to Democrat so he could mm-hmm. run in the Democratic primary, save his seat, save his job, uh, against this, this new insurgent congressman, uh, from suburban Philadelphia named Joe Sestak, who's a former admiral in the U.S. Navy. And uh, Joe Sestak is surging in the polls right now. But uh, Spectre is part of that deal to keep his seat, uh, to, to stay there as, as the senator. You know, he's been senator in Pennsylvania for uh, about 30 years now, uh, but to stay there to keep his job because he wants to retire and die in that seat. And he, he was very straight about it. He was straight no chaser. Hey, listen, I can't run in the Republican primary anymore. These guys, you know, these, these right-wingers, they, they own this thing. i got to switch parties. And he made a deal with the Democratic political machine there in the state, but especially in his hometown of Philadelphia, uh, you know, particularly with those unions uh, and who, who play a very big, dominant role in, in Philadelphia politics. Hey, okay, if I make this switch, you guys are going to support me through – uh, through this primary, through this Democratic primary. Now, at the time when he switched, uh, Sestak was only mauling a bid for the Senate, but everybody who was close to Sestak knew that Sestak was going to run this. And, and I, I wouldn't sleep on Sestak, uh, you know, just as an aside, kind of getting into some political junkie stuff here. I wouldn't sleep on Sestak, you know, especially when you have those late 11th-hour surges in polls like that and every poll that's, that's being taken right now in, in Pennsylvania uh, that means that Sestak may very well. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I, I try not to predict too much, but I, I get my guts telling me that Sestak's going to win that, uh, that primary. And uh, Sestak, same thing. He, that's how he won that congressional seat. A lot of people slept on him. He was a political novice, but that's what people like right now. Right, people, right. Uh, people aren't feeling incumbents. They're not feeling these guys that have been playing politics for years mm-hmm. and, 
and pretty much um, have been dominating, you know, sitting in a seat for, for decades. Uh, you know, they want something fresh and new. And uh, unfortunately for, for Arlen Specter, he, he represents the old school. People want new school uh, right now. That's what people are feeling like. That, that's at least the mood that I'm getting that I'm hearing on the streets. Right. Not even looking at the polls. What I hear on the streets is, you know, folks are like, you know, I want something fresh and new. I'm, this guy's been here for a long time. Or this, this, uh, you know, this, this, this person, this, this girl, she's been in it too long. She's had her skin in the game too long. I want, some, I want a new, a new man or a new woman. You know, somebody fresh with a fresh new perspective, and and the kind of climate that we're in, the kind of economic climate that we're in. We also want people who can. Uh, empathize with our current reality and condition right now. So uh, that that's very important to people. There's there's, a, there's definitely a rage out there. Right, and we we do know that these polls are suspect, and um, you know, it all depends on when they're taken. And I believe sometimes these numbers are released on these polls to try to sway. Um, right. Yeah, as well. So um, give us a give us an inside look at how are these polls taken. Um, how are these groups are are put together to be able to develop a survey that sort of leans or one way or the other? You know, I, and, and I'm, I like the fact that you asked that question because I, I'm very suspect of polls as well. Now, the business that I am, it's like we have no choice but to look at the polls. But one thing that I'll try to do is I'll try to collect a variety of polls in a particular race, rather than just looking at one or two specialized polls, but try to look at a variety of polls and they come out with an average. Uh, there's a website called realclearpolitics.com, mm. which does a beautiful job of that. Uh, it, it collects, it looks at polling data across the landscape, and it will come up with an average. Uh, so, you know, I kind of like that. And even with the average, it can be kind of skewed too, but at least you can get a more accurate picture. But polls mm. are suspect in the sense that first, you know, I, and, and speaking as – as an African-American male, as, as someone who grew up in the city, who who never gets those calls. Right, <laughs> I mean, right. <laughs> I've never had anybody, and I work in politics, I've never right. had anybody call me or call my house wanting to take a poll. And I remember taking mm -hmm. a polling company on uh, to, or taking them the task for that one time. I had to, for, uh, for a think tank, examine a poll regarding the level of political activity online. They did this poll here in the Washington D.C. metropolitan area. Now, Washington D.C. is, is, you know, it's fast becoming the non-chocolate city, but it still is a majority black city. It's still 60% black. Neighboring Prince George's County is is close to 75% black. Um, it, it's it's a lot of black people, and not just African Americans, but also people within the diaspora from the Caribbean and Africa as well mm -hmm. that are here mm -hmm. in Washington D.C. and 2% of the polling sample, when I say polling sample, you know, they, they, um, they drew a sample from about uh, 5,000 people uh, throughout the, that, that they, they took this poll from people, different people that they contacted, they claimed throughout the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. Only 2% of that sample was black. <laughs> and, and I'm like, how can you take an accurate poll about, online, about political activity online and only 2% of your sample is black, and you, you're taking this poll in Washington, D.C. You know, so, you know, they gave me a lot of, uh, a lot of grief for that and, and didn't include my analysis in the final product. They were, they were leaning on uh, several experts to all kind of give their analysis of this polling data. And so after writing about 30 pages on the, on the poll, 
you know, they they ended up not including mine because I was I was rather critical of that. You know, it's it's there, there's this uh, perception, particularly uh, by those who dominate the political world, uh, that that folks like like us, uh, you know, especially African Americans, aren't savvy about politics, and that could be mm. the farthest thing from the truth. Uh, you know, right. you show us a measure of truth. I mean, that's that's a big measure of truth right there. It's, mm-hmm. you know, we're very the past 400 years we've been in this country. We're extreme. We're we're, in fact, I would argue we are uh, some of the most political uh, people in this country, particularly with the type of history that we've had. Uh, we're very savvy about politics, very informed about it, and and very informed about it and knowledgeable about it on on from a very unique sort of level and perspective and but folks who dominate that game uh you know folks of a of a of a much wider persuasion <laughs> you know mm-hmm. tend to think that we're not and so they feel as though our opinion and our perspective on policy on politics uh is not worthy of of a poll and so you'll find that these polls when they typically they first take a sample they identify an area where they would like to take the poll whether it be local state or national uh if it's national they'll identify several different areas and then they'll they'll look within those areas at at major population centers or or a certain population center that they like to focus on and then they they draw from that they they extrapolate a sample and that sample it's like you know just a group of people on a digital uh, petri dish essentially that they look at very close and they contact those people either uh, by phone is the most popular way to do it focus groups you know they may call people in or put out an announcement and say uh, you know some folks may have gotten announcements from from focus group companies that say hey if you come on in we'll pay you you know a hundred dollars or so to come in and, and take a poll or to view a video or something and or meet this candidate and or look at a campaign commercial and let us know what you think and so they can kind of get a sense of who these people are, what people are thinking, uh, you know. Or they'll sometimes they'll do email polls, and then you have the more non-scientific polls that you see on websites. So there's a lot of different polling that's taking place uh, simultaneously, and, and different technological mediums are being used uh, to to conduct those sort of operations um, there. But I, I've always been very suspect of polls and very suspect of the people who take them. Uh, you know, there, mm-hmm. there are a lot of folks. Who work in politics or who work on polls? Uh, you know, they've some of them have, have never lived in a city. Uh, they've lived in a suburb. You know, which which doesn't I, I wouldn't say that that necessarily uh, 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 eliminates them from from doing that sort of thing. But uh, there are folks that haven't had certain experiences, or you know, may not have been in the middle class, may not have been in the working class. I don't know. It's just you know, there are a lot of folks who or who are not empathetic to those sort of social or economic conditions, and so. They tend to skew towards uh, familiar ground or, oh, or areas, and and I later on I found out that a lot of the, that sample that they conducted was primarily in Bethesda, Maryland, uh, or right. or very or 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 Fairfax, you know, places where you know it's primarily uh, middle class to upper middle upper class income. Those are areas where they felt comfortable. You know, of course they're not going to walk around to Northeast or Southeast Washington, D.C., Ward 7 or Ward 8, which I think that they, they would have gotten a, a, a really warm reception and people really willing to take these sort of polls so they could have their voice heard. But, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not used to those types of environments, and so they go with what they know. Right, right. And another thing as well is even when you do take a poll, 
um, regardless of the areas that you survey, there's always a point where you can get what you feel is the number that you want, and you can stop it. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas you could have continued and, and got up, you know, a more diverse poll, but you decided to go ahead and stop at the result that you wanted in order to be able to, um, you know, do what you needed exactly. to do. And, exactly. and I have been one of those that have been polled. I live in Fairfax County. And, um, you know, I, I was surprised. I got a poll. I was just like, I was telling well, everybody about it. Yeah, I actually had that opportunity. But um, well, that, see, that's a that's a big story. That's a headline, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Trust me, I was not ready for it. I was like, "Are, are you serious? Somebody's right, playing right. with them, right?" So yeah, but um, yeah, this was this was right before um, the election, as a matter of fact, and it was very. Oh, you know, another another thing too, Michael. Real quick, not I didn't mean to cut you off, but sure. um, you know, there's also a, a, a small issue uh, that you know a lot of folks don't hear about, but there, there's a serious problem where you don't have. Uh, a great number of of black or Latino or um, or other types of pollsters. You know, most of the pollsters are who dominate that world. And there's a lot of money that that flows through it. These campaigns mm-hmm. will pay big money for these polls. Right. Uh, and but you don't have a whole. I mean, I think there there are only three that I know of as far as black pollsters, and who, who actually run their own kind of polling company and take these polls. They're, they're very. It's a very specialized business and science. Uh, same thing with, uh, you know, there was an article in Politics Magazine. Great magazine comes out every month about the business of politics. And I actually co-host a segment with them every month on the New School. Mm. And, uh, you know, they, they had an article about the lack of uh, black political consultants. Um, you know, once again, you know, this is a big game. And there's a lot of black folks who were involved in politics. Interesting. Right, right. We've got 43 black members of Congress. We've got nearly 650 black state legislators throughout the United States. A lot of people don't realize we've got black state house and state senators, um, state house delegates and senators who are all throughout the United States that have just as much clout as a congressional black caucus. And you've got hundreds of black mayors, hundreds of black city council people. Um, we're very active and very involved in politics. So um, it's a big multi-billion dollar business out there um, that's, that's being um, – that, that's being sort of conducted, and, and a lot of us, um, you know, because, you know, that's why I, I'm not a big fan of every time, every four years, you know, P. Diddy and these other folks come out with rock the vote, you know, vote or die. It's like, I, okay, that's fine. We got to vote, but, you know, tell me something I don't know. Tell me about the process beyond the vote. Tell me about that stuff going on behind the scenes. I don't want to just hear your um, got a vote pitch. Uh, yeah, of course we got a vote. That goes without saying. But I don't want to hear your pitch just because you're trying to get a tax write-off and, and attract a commercial sponsor so you can make some money. Tell me some ways in which I can get into the game. I want to learn more about this politics hustle. And right, you know, right. that's the game I want to learn about, you know, you. beyond this vote thing. So, you know, that's why I get a little irritated uh, when every four years that, you know, and nothing, but you don't see that happening between those cycles during the congressional midterms, which are just as important as right. the presidential cycles and also a lot of those gubernatorial races that take place too. Yeah, very true. And um, and it's, it's amazing too how so many people can be mobilized just for a short period of time, but then there's nothing that follows up afterwards to keep the process going. Um, and um, right. it, it was very interesting with the last election as well 
that there were so many young people involved, but I, I just don't hear as much about that now and about the activism that was going on before Barack was elected. So yeah, it is something that I guess we need to address. We, we really need to re-engage our young people with the political process and, and do what we can to um, make sure that they are well-informed and, and know a little bit more than just the rhetoric that we hear, like you say, all the time. It's the same thing over and over again. You're, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, two big things we need is we need the resurgence of a, of a civics movement, uh, a civics literacy movement, and a financial literacy movement uh, for our community, for our kids. Um, those are, those, I, I don't think you should be – folks should not be allowed to graduate from high school unless they know civics. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of – you know, I grew up with I'm Just a Bill. Remember that yeah, one? Yeah, yeah. So, oh, yeah. Five, are you kidding? Have it on, need, have it on DVD. Yeah, we need that. We need to reintroduce that uh, into in, into our education uh, right. system right. and into the curriculum. We really do. Got, you know, kids need to know how this process works. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't just need to every so often when they turn 18, oh, you got to vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's just I, I think they miss so much, and I think we're it, it's a great – I think we're doing them a great disservice by not teaching them about the process. And it's so fascinating. And it's It, it doesn't have to be – something boring, dreadfully boring that comes up every Sunday and you turn the TV off because you don't want to watch Meet the Press, watching these old white guys kind of go back and forth right. about these, these very foreign issues. No, it's a mm-hmm. very fascinating process that takes place that impacts every aspect of your lives, from the houses mm-hmm. we live in to the cars we drive to the clothes right. we wear and the food mm-hmm. we eat. It's, it's, we, we need to know about that, particularly um, uh, our community. Um, it's, it's absolutely critical. Well, Charles, you know, you've made a really good point, though, when you, when you brought up the um, schoolhouse rock thing. Um, I, I, I do have that on DVD, the whole series, and that was, remember Saturday morning used to be education as well as entertainment for kids, you know, and, and we would always learn something, and um, that's disappeared. Um, you know, it's all entertainment for ch- children now because you have to compete with video games. What can you put out there that's exciting enough that will at least get them to sit down and watch this show? So it, right. it, it's a shame right. that we've we've given that up and um, we sort of knuckled under in order to, um, and a lot of parents still aren't watching television with their children. They're not educating them. They're looking for, you know, the school, the television, and someone else to educate their kids. They're just not putting in the work and they're not putting in the effort anymore. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're absolutely right, Michael. I appreciate that. Yeah. You know, um, we're, we're about ready to close up the show and I just wanted to check to make sure that you were giving all your information. You're so, you're into so many things. I don't know what you want to give first, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know, you know, I just, uh, you know, for for your listeners, uh, they can go to my uh, website. It's really my blog. Uh, it's a central blog, Charles D. Ellison. Uh, Ellison, just like Ralph Ellison. Uh, I'm not related, though, but charlesdellison.blogspot.com, and you can get all the information you need to know. You can know where I am, when, when any book signings are taking place, and any of my latest uh, articles or, or commentary. And also you can hear the radio show on the website. Um, actually, I provide uh, free clips. You don't have to be a serious XM subscriber to, to go to charlesdellison.blogspot.com and, and hear some of the archives of the show. Uh, or you can, if you do subscribe to Sirius XM, I'm on three different channels. There, I'm on the POTUS channel and also the Power. 
uh, and I, I air every Saturday, 7 a.m., 1 p.m., and 7 p.m. Eastern time on POTUS, uh, which is Sirius 110 and XM 130, and The Power, which is XM 169, and I re-air throughout the week. Um, but I, I definitely want to let your listeners know there's a great new political uh, news site that's out, Politic. 365.com, that's politic right. without the S, 365.com. I, I started writing for them about a few weeks ago. I'm on there daily. Uh, great content, uh, some great writers on there. It's, it's the, uh, the happening thing. And uh, definitely I, I urge your readers to go check it out. I'm on there daily pretty much, uh, writing pretty much four or five times a week for them and, uh, you know, loving it. So, you know, that, that, I exactly. urge your listeners, anything you want to learn about or, or kind of keeping up with what I'm doing and what I'm talking about, uh, you know, definitely check those two sources out. Well, and I'm well thanks, Charles. Oh, yeah, and absolutely, on Facebook. You can find him. If you're on my page, you can definitely find Charles directly by searching through my friends. But, Charles, I want to thank you again for coming on, and we're running out of time, but we will have you back on again. Um, we're going to find some something really, really juicy to talk about. Next time that there's a big issue that you have a, um, a strong opinion on, I would love to have you back on and give your take. Michael, I really appreciate that. We'll have you on as well, too. So let's uh, looking forward to that, man. Oh, okay. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. It was good talking with you, Charles. Good talking with you as well, Michael. And, uh, you know, peace to all your listeners. And uh, thanks again. Take care. Okay, you too. Thank you. It seems that the truth has somehow lost its appeal. In today's society, what really can we say is the truth? Most of what we hear from news sources, whether they're TV, radio, newspapers, magazines, and the Internet, have been crafted with only one goal in mind, to sell more publications, get higher ratings, and grab the attention of more and more consumers. We as consumers have been corralled, misled, polluted, and confused by the media hype and spin doctor machine until we're too exhausted and overwhelmed by the rhetoric and minutiae to have the focus attention needed to analyze the facts when the truth finally does come to light. The story that could be has become so enticing to the media conglomerates that the real story and a great story no longer resemble one another. A Measure of Truth attempts to expose the underlying truth of news stories that you all have heard before, but gives you first-hand accounts from key players that have not yet been given a voice to tell the facts. These bearers of the truth are often forced to wait until the media hype has expired and the backstory, which was in fact the only story, finally comes into vogue. When news and information comes with this much baggage, you can only hope for a measure of truth. Well, thank you, Charles Ellison, and we hope to hear from you again in the near future. Special thanks to producer Donna Hardiman. I'm Michael Fordham, and you've been listening to A Measure of Truth. But before you go, here's a little something to take with you. Ask God for wisdom daily, but know that your lesson can come from anybody or any situation, good or bad, friend or foe. Watch your thoughts, they become words, and watch your words, they become actions. Watch your actions, they become habits, and watch your habits, they become your character. Watch your character, it becomes your destiny. Until we meet again, Take care of what becomes of you.
Yeah. 